Well, good morning once again. I want to begin by just saying that I am thankful uh, for this opportunity and privilege of being able to preach the gospel of God to you. It truly is a privilege beyond what I can express to preach God's Word. But dear brothers and sisters, the same thing can be said for you this morning. It is a privilege beyond what words can express to hear God's Word. And it's not so much your privilege to hear from me this morning, but it is your privilege to hear from God, which, Lord willing, is exactly what will occur today. Spurgeon once said, Mourners do not fall asleep while the will is being read, if they expect to be beneficiaries of it. He said, Self-interest quickens attention. And so, sermon hearers, you need to understand that if the Word of God is being faithfully preached, Christ Himself is speaking to you personally. And the matters being spoken of are of particular importance for you individually. And so I pray that the Lord would give you grace to listen to the teaching and the preaching of His Word with the appropriate attentiveness that it deserves. 2 Timothy 3, 15-17 says that the Scriptures are able to make a man wise unto salvation and they are able to equip a man for every good work. And so what are the scriptures able to do? Well, one, they are able to make a man wise unto salvation. And secondly, they are able to equip a man for every good work. In other words, it is the scripture that we need both to continuously point us back to the gospel message of what God has done in His Son to save sinners and to instruct us on how to live a life that is pleasing in the sight of God. And so... Brothers and sisters, I hope you feel the weight of what we are about to engage in. The preaching of God's Word occupies a central place in the worship of God. Now you see that uh, in the way that we, and along with every biblical church throughout the ages, have structured and formatted our worship services. Biblical churches elevate preaching to the place of highest prominence in the worship of God. Now, why is this so? Why, why do we elevate preaching to the highest prominence in our worship services? Well, the reason we do so is because the Word of God is the very self-revelation of God. This is how God reveals Himself to us. Now, how does God reveal Himself to us most fully? Well, He does it in the person and the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. The preaching of God's Word is the preaching of Christ. We preach Christ and Him crucified. And as we preach Christ, we preach what He came to do. And what is it that Christ came to do? Well, He came to save His people from their sins. And not only did He come to save us from the penalty of sin, He also came to save us from the very power and the very presence of sin. Ephesians 5 teaches us that Christ so loved the church that He gave Himself up for her. And if you look at Ephesians 5, why did He give Himself up for her? Well, the text tells us, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so the preaching of the Word of God is the very means by which God has so chosen to save and to sanctify His people. Beloved, we are blessed, and I hope you are truly excited this morning to worship God by the hearing of His Word. 
The Puritan Thomas Watson writes the following concerning the hearing of the word preached. He says, Do we prize it in our judgments? Do we receive it into our hearts? Do we fear the loss of the word preached more than the loss of peace and trade? Do we attend to the word with reverent devotion? When the judge is giving the charge on the bench, all attend. When the word is preached, the great God is giving us his charge. Do we listen to it as a matter of life and death? This is a good sign if we listen to it in this way that we love the word. And in so loving the word gives evidence that we love the giver of the word. With this in mind, let us now open the holy word of God. If you would turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. And this morning we're going to consider verses 13 and 14. Now before I read the text, I would remind you of this. We are meeting this morning in the very presence of God. God really is in the room today. Whether you feel His presence or not, He is truly in this room today. And this God knows and He sees all. He's, um, he's omnipotent, He's omnipresent, and He's omniscient. He knows and He sees all. And He knows your very thoughts this morning. He knows the very motivations of your heart. And so I urge you, take heed how you listen to His Word this morning. With these great truths in our mind, let us go before the Lord in prayer before He speaks to us from His Word. Holy Father, we come before Your throne this morning, realizing that we come before a holy God, a God that does not and will not tolerate sin. Lord, Your Word tells us that when the Gospel is preached, that it is a fragrance of death to death to those who refuse to obey Your Gospel. But to those who in humility repent and believe, it is a fragrance of life to life. And as the Apostle Paul says, Lord, who is sufficient for these things? I realize I cannot preach your gospel rightly apart from your grace. And your people here cannot hear rightly apart from the Holy Spirit opening their hearts and their minds to receive the word in faith. So Father, I ask that you would be merciful this morning. We know although you are a God who is holy and does not tolerate sin, you are also a God who is full of grace. So we pray that your amazing grace would be evident this morning. Would your word accomplish its mission? Would you save sinners this morning and sanctify those who have already been saved? And all of this to the glory of your dear Son. And Father, May when we look back on this day when we lay our heads down to sleep this evening, may we be able to say truly God was in our presence today. He was truly in His house. Father, please meet with us. Bless your people. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look now at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. God's Word says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it 
are few. Thus the reading of God's word and his people said, well, in order for us to understand what these verses mean and the weight of them, we need to consider the context in which they were said. Now, you're probably aware that this, these verses come in the context of what has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount, which, of course, is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So if you would, please look back with me now to Matthew chapter 5, to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and notice with me verses 1 and 2. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And so the way that Matthew describes the setting for this sermon that Jesus will preach, I believe is setting the stage for one of the most important moments in all of human history. You see, a long, long time ago, there was a man named Moses who went up on a mountain, and he received the law of God. And then he brought that law down to the people of God on two tablets of stone. And this law was truly the revealed will of God for His people. But yet this God was still distant in many ways. If you recall, that mountain was covered in smoke and anyone except for Moses, man or beast, who touched that mountain would die. And so the Word of God was delivered to the people through a mediator. But there was, there was a barrier between the people and God. But what we have here in Matthew is that God Himself has went up on the mountain. God has come in the flesh and is dwelling with men and God is going to open His mouth and give us His law. And so there is a difference between Moses being a mediator, lowercase m, and Jesus being the mediator, capital M. Although Jesus is our mediator, it's still God Himself that is speaking to us in this sermon. And so Matthew is introducing to us one of the most important events in all of history. And the teaching that will flow out of the mouth of Jesus is the most important teaching in all of history because the content of this teaching will reveal to us what it means to be a Christian. Now, many of you are probably somewhat familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. It contains some of the most memorable and impactful passages in all of Scripture. The teaching of Jesus in this sermon truly is beautiful. Really, this is truly beautiful teaching. But this teaching is also dangerous. And it is dangerous because the way that Jesus preaches in this sermon, you, you, cannot just bear, you can't just merely embrace what He's saying with the intellect. You see, His teaching grabs the entirety of your life and it leaves you no wiggle room anywhere for you to live your life on your own terms. The Sermon on the Mount backs you into a corner and makes you realize that the only hope of being right with God is not in a righteousness that comes through your works, but rather it is in the mercy of God and the gospel. And that the only acceptable course of action for any person is repentance, faith, and obedience to Christ. That's, that's the beauty of Jesus' teaching. It backs you into a corner where you have no other option. You can either reject Christ or uh, um, turn to Christ in repentance. That is the only option. And that is the way that Jesus teaches. So we see here again in verse 2. He opens his mouth and begins to teach them saying, well one preacher put it like this. He says, this is like a drum roll that began in Genesis and moves all the way through all of the Old Testament prophets, building momentum 
until this very moment when God Himself opens His mouth and teaches us. And what does He teach us in this sermon? Well, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you quickly realize that this teaching is about much more than just some rules for us to follow in order to live moral lives. No, this teaching reveals that what is necessary is a, is a very revolution in our being. It is talking about the need for an ontological change. And I know that's a big fancy word, but what that means is this. That when the gospel of Christ embraces a man, it changes him at the very core of his being. That's what is needed. That's what the sermon points out. That, that is your need. You cannot keep these laws that Jesus lays out. You need to be changed at the very core of your being. And so this is not a dressing up on the outside kind of change, but it is literally changing who the person is. It is, as the Bible puts it, being born again or being made into a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so you see the Sermon on the Mount is not a how-to sermon on how a person can become a Christian, but rather it is a description of who a Christian is and what the Christian life is all about. And if you understand anything about the nature of man and our depravity, you understand that none of what Jesus commands is possible outside of a miraculous change brought about by the very grace of God. And because salvation is primarily about God demonstrating His love and power, you can be assured that if God has saved a man, He will change that man at the very core of His being. A saved life is a changed life. There is no such thing as a saved life that is also not a changed life. If your life has not been changed, you are therefore not saved. And because God is faithful, He will bring to completion the good work He has started. Which means not only will He change a man at conversion, but He will also set that man's life on a course whereby that man will continually be changed and conformed more and more into the image of Christ. So not only does God change a man at conversion, He continues to change that man for, throughout the rest of his life, all the way to the point he is perfectly conformed into the image of Christ when he is glorified. To illustrate this, think of the Beatitudes. Of course, that begins in verse 3 and runs down through verse 11 of chapter 5. Let's just look at a few of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So what we have here is not a checklist. If you do this, 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 and this, that's what you have to do to enter into being a Christian. It's not saying, if you do all these things, that's how you become a Christian. It's saying that this is what a Christian is. This is who a Christian is. Okay, But that also means this. If these things are not true of you, then you may not be a Christian. See that? Because this is a description of who a Christian is. And so when we read the Beatitudes, we begin to realize that most of us would read these Beatitudes and say, I don't measure up too well to this. See that? What does that cause you to do? Again, that's what Jesus is doing. It backs you into that corner. It backs into the corner of, I need the very mercy of God that is found in Christ alone. But the reality is, if God has placed His mercy upon you and saved you, these will become truths in your life. 
Not perfect this side of heaven, but you can accurately and honestly say that these are true of me if you are a Christian. And so the question for you as you read the Beatitudes is to examine yourself. Do you measure up to this? If not, seek Christ. If you do, to some degree, give Christ glory. But still seek Christ because you don't measure up all the way. Okay. Now, of course, this continual change, what we call sanctification, does not happen in a perfect linear way. So God changes the man at conversion and He changes him progressively until He is, he is perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. But that's not a perfect linear change. It's a change that's marked by setback, two steps forward, one step back. It's a struggle, right? But the reality is, over the course of a person's life, they will change. They will be, they will be more like Christ at the end of their life than they are at, the begin, at their conversion. If that is not happening, if you are not really changing, then there is no evidence that you are saved. Not all Christians grow to the same degree. Not all Christians grow in the same speed. But all Christians grow. And so the question you must ask yourself is, are you growing? Are you being conformed more into the image of Christ? And so the Sermon on the Mount is about Jesus explaining what a Christian that is a follower of Christ is to be and how that follower of Christ is to walk after the Lord. And so that, that's really the, the context and the background of our text this morning in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7. So let's look again at that text. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Notice with me in verse 14. And find that word life. Life. That truly is such a beautiful and rich word, is it not? There's something desirable about that word, life. You know, at some level, as human beings, we are just wired to desire life. That's just the reality we are. And the scripture says that Christ came to give people life and life more abundantly. Now, of course, the Lord Jesus is not speaking here of, of this life per se, or the life that is common to all people. We know this because Jesus tells us that the life He is speaking of, only few find. And you don't, just, you don't speak that way about the life that is common to all people, who have a, a pulse and brain activity. So He's not defining life here by the, the physical or clinical definition of life. He's speaking about something that is far, far greater. He's not talking about simply existing or even existing forever. So what is he talking about when he says life? Well, we don't have to guess about what he's talking about here because later on in his ministry, Jesus tells us exactly what this life is. He tells us in John 17, 3, what life is. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so, brothers and sisters, that is the life that is being spoken of here in our passage this morning. It is to know and to be known by God. It is to have a real personal relationship with the triune God, where He truly is your treasure and your delight and your very reason for being. That, that's the life being spoken of here. It's to have the very King of glory not be ashamed to call you His brother or sister. 
So that's the life being spoken of here by Christ. Now, what is the opposite of life? Well, of course, the opposite of life is death. And when you compare verse 14 with verse 13, we see that the opposite of life is destruction. The end of that way is destruction. So it's being juxtaposed with the way that leads to life. Now that's also a powerful word, is it not? The word destruction. And we see in these verses that Jesus is a prophet because He tells us that He knew before He ever went to the cross to pour out His lifeblood that only few would find life and that many would walk the road that leads to destruction. Despite the fact that Jesus made the great sacrifice for sinners, it seems evident from this passage that most of the multitudes of people on earth will throw away their one and only hope and walk that road that leads to ruin and destruction. That's what it says. It says, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. And so the question that begs to be asked after reading this text is, of course, why? Why would people walk headlong off the cliff, as it were, when there's a road that leads to life? You would think that people would make haste with much energy to flee from this destruction and take the road that leads to life. But the reality is they don't. Most men and women and boys and girls do not run away from destruction. They run towards it. Again, we must ask the question, why is this so? Well, in verse 13, we see the answer to that question. The ESV translates it and reads this way. The way is easy that leads to destruction. Now, the King James Version renders this verse a little bit different. It says that broad is the way that leads to destruction. So we have one version saying that uh, using the word broad to describe the way and another version saying using the word easy. So let's take a minute to do a little bit of Bible study or word study. In Isaiah 30, verse 23, you don't have to turn there, but uh, we see this same Greek word that is translated broad or easy. Um, we see that same word there. Let's see how that word is translated. So that verse reads, Isaiah 30, 23, And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground, the bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. Now, did you hear the word broad or easy in that, in that verse? We didn't. But the word that is translated as broad or easy in this verse is translated as plenteous. So that's our word there, plenteous. Of course, that doesn't really sound like broad, does it? You see, the word carries with it the idea not that it's just a wide open space, but it's a wide space that is open with abundance. That's the idea here. It's a plenteous way. Listen to the same word used again in Isaiah 33, verses 20 and 21. There it says, Behold Zion, the city of your appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad, there's a, there's a word, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go nor majestic ship can pass. And so you see the idea expressed here by this word is much more than just wide. It carries the idea of abundance and blessing and security and prosperity. 
That's the idea that the word carries. And just to, to drive home the point, one more scripture. Psalm 31.8 says the following. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Again, you see here the word broad is used to describe a place of blessing and safety. Not simply just a wide expanse. For, for example, you know that a desert is a broad place, right? It's a wide, broad expanse. Is that a place you want to have your feet set on? No. Okay, so it's not just saying it's a wide expanse. It's saying it's a place of abundance and safety and blessing. And so this concept of just being wide is not what is being meant here in Matthew 7. And so why is the usage of the word broad important to understand when we come to our passage in Matthew 7? Because when Jesus describes the broad way, he is not just saying that it's wide enough so it can accommodate the massive amount of people that are walking on this way. No, Jesus is seeking to paint for us a word picture. He is seeking to illustrate the truth that he is teaching. Let's think through this word picture a little bit. So verse 13 says that the gate is wide and broad is the way or easy is the way that leads to destruction. And so just imagine with me for a moment. If you were to go and to walk up to the wide gate and you were given the opportunity to open the wide gate up and just get a glimpse of what that way looks like. What do you think that way would look like? Well, you would see a way that is full of plenty and apparent blessings and freedom. Now, our first thought might be, because this is a way that leads to destruction, we might think, well, if we was to look through this gate, what would we see? We would see just the worst possible sinners you can think of. You would just see massive chaos and, and um, just the, the worst type of sinners, wicked people, uh, atheists of the worst sort. Pagans of the worst sort. But that's not the picture that Jesus is showing us. Remember, his ministry at this time is primarily to who? It's primarily to the Jews, right? And so Jesus reminds us that you can have your religion in this easy way as well. This way that leads to destruction is broad enough to accommodate religion. As a matter of fact, when you stick your head through the wide gate and look around, you will see that most of the people in there are, in fact, religious. Notice just a few verses down in our passage. And we can see some of these same people who are on the easy way. If you would, drop down to verse number 22 of Matthew chapter 7. There it says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so we see here that many people in this way are religious. And lots of people are in there talking about the Lord and even, even doing a lot of things in the name of the Lord. Casting out demons and doing many mighty works in His name. Now, matter of fact, listen to me closely here. You can walk this easy way and believe in Jesus in a sense. Lots of people are in this way saying, Lord, Lord, thus emphatically declaring that Jesus is Lord. See, the, way, the reason this way is so enticing is because in this way, you can make Jesus whatever you want Him to be. 
You can walk the easy way and all the while have a confident hope that you have eternal life and that all is well with your soul. You know, most of the people on the easy way believe that when they die, it's going to be okay for them, that they're going to be in heaven. The majority of the people on the easy way believe that they're walking the way that will lead to heaven. So let's continue to examine what this easy way looks like. As you look around, you see that there's a lot of laughter and fun and entertainment. You see that this way is full of friends and family. There's holiday gatherings with family in this way. There's Friday nights out with your friends in this way. There's many pleasures to be had on this easy way. If you notice, I've not mentioned any sins yet. I'm talking about good things, easy, easy things, things that are delightful and enjoyable. In fact, you can pursue happiness in this way. And you can do so however you want to. You can go to the left or you can go to the right. You can be legalistic if you want to. Or if you prefer, you can be antinomian. You can go with the flow on this way. You can justify yourself on this easy way. In fact, you can believe that you're saved by grace and therefore it doesn't matter how you live. You see, there's so much freedom in this easy way. On the easy way, you can fill your life with whatever you want. It can be filled with pursuing hobbies. It can be filled with trying to be successful in your career. Or you can just be a couch potato and live for whatever the next sitcom is. You can do that because it is an easy way. You can go to work, make your money, come home, tend to your garden, and then on Sunday afternoons take long naps on this easy way. You can be a really nice person on the easy way. In fact, if you're really nice, it will make the way all the more easier for you. Hopefully I've made the point clear. This is a very enticing and inviting way to live. It's easy. And billions of people are currently on this way and they see no reason to get off of it. It's an easy way. Now what is the problem with this easy way? Because there is a problem with this way. You can live your life doing whatever your heart desires. You can chase your dreams. But eventually what happens? You die. You see, the broad and the easy way is just that. It is a way. It's a way that leads somewhere, and where it leads is anything but easy and broad. It leads to a place where there's not many choices available. It's only broad in the way. The end, however, is very narrow. The end of this way, it tells us in verse 13, is destruction. And again, what what a horrible Word. Sometimes we can read over words and not think about the weight of them. So in order for us to rightly think on this word, we need to have the experience that Job had in the last several chapters where God takes it upon Himself to reveal Himself to Job. And as you read those last chapters in Job, you see that God just seems to get bigger and bigger and more powerful and more wise and more holy. And, he, and as He reveals Himself more and more, Job realizes that this God is not a God to be trifled with. He's not a God to be messed with. He is not a God that we, should, that we should raise up our fist at in disobedience. And He is not a God that we should ignore. 
You see, we truly are very small and weak compared to God. I mean, it really defies our ability to explain it. The whole earth is a small thing to God. And we are but a speck. And to think that, though, that for those who walk the easy way, their, their end will be this, that the omnipotent God will set Himself to destroy them. you understand the weight of that? We who are so small and weak, if you walk the easy way, the end of your way will be the very omnipotent God setting Himself fully to destroy you. And so you don't get to live your life in rejection and indifference to God and get away scot-free. No, this God, if you live that way, this God will hurt you. And I know that's harsh language, but the reality is it's true. Destruction will hurt you for eternity if you walk the easy way. We've mentioned this before, but who is it that rules hell? It's not yes, God, it's not Satan. You remember it is Satan who will be thrown into hell. And it's God, God will be the one doing the throwing. And the same fate awaits all those who live and walk according to their own terms. To walk down the easy way. Have you never read, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever in the presence of the Lamb? Whose torment? The torment of those who walk the easy way. Now that really is such a nightmare to think about. And it's not something that we like to think about. But Jesus spoke more about, uh, about the realities of hell than anyone else. And we would do well to heed His warnings. He says very clearly here, here, if you walk the easy way, the end is destruction. And that destruction is a very omnipotent God destroying you for eternity. It's very clear about it. It's not, it's not complicated to understand. If you would, please turn with me now to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And we'll see an example of this, of what Jesus is seeking to, to teach us here. We see here in this psalm that Asaph considered the end of the wicked. He considered the end of those who walked the easy way. So Psalm 73, beginning in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure at heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They're walking an easy way. You see this. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? So they, they, they mock God. Behold, these are the wicked. And notice the words it use. Words it use next. Always at ease. They increase in riches. It's, it's describing those who walk the easy way. This is the way of the wicked. They are always at ease, it says. And then here's Asa's response in verse 13. 
All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So he's, he's upset. He's envious that they are prospering and he's struggling. Although he's seeking to obey God and follow after God and they're not. Verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, he comes to his senses here. I would have betrayed this, this generation or the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, it says, I went into the sanctuary of God. See the importance of coming to corporate worship? See the importance of placing yourself under the means of grace? Asaph's view, view of reality was being distorted here. He was not seeing the world clearly until he entered into the sanctuary of God. We need to every week come back to the sanctuary of God and be reminded of what reality is. We can be blinded to reality as we live our everyday lives. So we need to regularly be reminded of the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. And so he says, when I went to the sanctuary of God, then, it says, I discerned their end. And look at what their end is. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. And here's our word. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. And so the end of that way, that way of ease and prosperity, that way of mocking God and not following God, the end of that way was destruction. And so it, we would do well to remember with Asaph the end of the way of the wicked. Truly this is the end of all that walk the easy path. Now let's turn our attention now to verse 14 in Matthew. Chapter 7. There it says, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so the Lord Jesus tells us that the way that leads to life is hard. Now the ESV here renders the word hard. The New King James Version renders the word, renders the word difficult. And the KJV and the NASV render the word narrow. So very, much, very similar to the way uh, we look at the word, the word broad and easy. Narrow here is the literal rendering of the word, but there is a metaphoric meaning to the word as well. And the metaphoric meaning, of course, is hard or difficult. If you notice in 2 Corinthians 4.8, we see the same word um, that is translated as narrow or hard. And there Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. So the word afflicted is the same word that is translated as hard or narrow in Matthew 7, 14. And so the idea, the concept behind this word is the idea of being hard-pressed or to go through suffering or trouble. In fact, it's actually a very similar word to what is used at the end of verse 13. That word destruction. We see this if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 6 where it says, since, in God, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It's a very similar concept as the word destruction in verse 13. And so those who would walk the way that leads to life, they have to be destroyed in the way that leads to life. You see that? They have to be afflicted in the way that leads to life. And so... As we begin to understand that, we begin to see something of the weight of what Jesus is teaching us. 
Now, consider with me what the disciples experienced when they heard these words. So the Lord Jesus came up on the mountain after seeing the crowds, and the disciples came up and sat in the front row, as it were. And Jesus sat down and opened His mouth, and He taught them. And just as real as us sitting in this room, Jesus looked at those disciples right in the eye, and He told them, the way to life is hard. Now, consider who the disciples heard this from. They did not hear this from some prince who grew up with everything handed to him on a silver platter. Or one who walked around wearing silky, soft clothes with manicured hands. No, the man Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was a man who would suffer like no other man has ever suffered. Jesus was no weakling. He was no pushover. And so when he says that this way to life is hard, well, I think that carries a lot of weight. I think we, we can take that to the bank. If Jesus says this is a hard way, he's not lying to us. He's telling us the truth. So if you're looking for an easy Christianity, well, that's the easy road. That, that's not this road that leads to life. Now let's think about this together. It's, it's sort of a paradox here. Doesn't Jesus also say that His yoke is easy and that His burden is light? Isn't Christianity about having your sins forgiven? That doesn't sound hard to me. That sounds pretty great, having your sins forgiven. Isn't Christianity about being saved by grace? Well, that doesn't sound hard either. So what is meant when Jesus says that this way is hard? We need to work through that and look at this. One example of this is, um, has anyone in here ever read the story Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? I'm sure several of you have. Well, that, that story, of course, is a wonderful allegory of the Christian life. And if anything stands out from reading Pilgrim's Progress, it is this, that the journey that Christian makes to get to the celestial city is what? Really, really hard, right? That, that's, if anything stands out in that book, that's, that stands out. And so if you're familiar with the story, think about Christian's journey after he, after he enters through the wicked gate or after he enters through the narrow gate. You see the connection to our passage. Of course, he has the hill of difficulty. Then he loses his scroll. He has to backtrack. Then there's the valley of humiliation. Then there's the valley of the shadow of death. Then there's vanity fair. Then there's bypath meta. Then there's doubting castle. And there's the giant despair. And finally, there's a river to cross. You see the picture here. It's like Christian goes from the frying pan to the fire over and over again. And for good reason. Because that is an accurate description of the Christian life. Now there's a scene in that book where Christian and Hope for are together at the Delectable Mountains. And they're with the shepherds and they make the following statement. So Christian and Hopeful cry out. They say, we had need to cry to the strong for strength. Of course, the strong is referencing, referencing God. So they are saying we need to cry out for strength. We need strength. They're praying for strength. And the shepherds reply to them is very, I think, very um, instructive to us. The shepherds reply, Ah, and you will need to use it when you have it too. So it's not just that we cry out for strength. We cry out for strength. Why? Because we need it. We need strength to be able to walk the Christian way. So what is meant by this 
is that yes, the Lord will give you grace and strength to live the Christian life, but make no mistake, you will need to use all the strength He gives you if you're going to make it to the end. Now, it is true that we are upheld and undergirded by the everlasting arms, but even so, we must need to fight and claw and battle and work work out our salvation with fear and trembling because the reality is there are such powers that will resist us that if it were not for God's arms underneath us, you would fall in a moment. So there is this synergistic work that's taking place. Yes, God is upholding you, but you must also work and fight and struggle. Brothers and sisters, the truth is that your flesh, the world and the devil, will press you and squeeze you and entice you to not walk the narrow way. Now, Earlier, we peeked our head into the wide gate and looked at the broad and the easy way. Now, let us peek our heads into this narrow gate and look around. Now, imagine you you walk up to the narrow gate, you open it up, and you get a chance to just see what this narrow way looks like. Well, you notice first when you peek your head in there that there is a different atmosphere about this way than the easy way. There's not a whole lot of frivolity in this way. There's a seriousness about this way. Yes, there is the sound of laughter at times, and there's also the sound of worship and song. There's also the sound of sorrow and weeping. Then as you look around and listen, you hear the sound of the pruning shears. And you see people walking in there, and they're getting all sorts of things chopped off. Then you hear the sound of the rod of correction. Then you hear and you feel the heat of the blast furnace. And you see people people being passed through the refiner's fire. And you realize that this way that leads to life is hard. If you go in there, you will be stripped. All of your idols will be sheared from you. They will be disciplined from you. And they will be purged from you by the refiner's fire. The old Presbyterian William Sprague said the following in a sermon directed to ministers on how they are to disciple new converts. He said, Strive to impress the young, the young convert from the very beginning with the conviction that God has called him into his kingdom to struggle with the corruptions of his heart. If God has called you to walk the hard way that leads to life, he has called you to struggle against the corruptions of your own heart. You know why this narrow way is hard? Basically, simply is this. Because there's death in there. That's why the way is hard. It is a way of death. Jesus said it over and over in the Gospels. Matthew 10. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Mark 8, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Luke 17, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So over and over again we see Jesus telling us that the Christian life is all about dying. That's the reality of it. And sometimes we can reduce the Christian life down to just Well, we need to believe the right things and have the right theology. And that's true. We need to believe the right things and have the right theology. 
But, but can't you see that the Christian life is about much more than that? Yes, we are to believe the right things and have the right doctrine, but believing those things is supposed to lead to something. And that something is this, that as Christians we are to follow Him. And that requires that we must take up our cross and walk the same path that He walked. Now do you think Jesus would have said that the way to life is hard? If the Christian life is really going to be an easy life? Or do you think He was using this imagery of death on purpose? I think He was using this imagery of death on purpose. This is the reality. If you are going to be a Christian, if you're going to walk the hard way, you must die to yourself. That there is no other option. That is the only way to life. I'm going to read to you now a quote from A.W. Tozer. And he speaks of something of the struggle of the Christian life. He says, The ancient curse will not go out painlessly. The tough old miser within us will not lie down and die obedient to our command. Speaking of the old man, we must put to death the old man. He says, He, the old man, must be torn out of our heart like a plant from the soil. He must be extracted in agony and blood like a tooth from the jaw. He must be expelled from our soul by violence as Christ expelled the money changers from the temple. And we shall need to steel ourselves against His piteous begging. So he speaks of the violence that is needed to mortify the flesh. But I really appreciate that he, that he mentioned that the old man will use piteous begging when you attempt to kill him. And you know what that piteous begging is. You've experienced it. Just one more time. No one will know. It's not hurting anybody. They were mean to me first. It's not that bad of a sin. Everyone does it, you know. Don't be so legalistic. You can repent later. You've heard that before, right? You've heard that old man piteously begging when you sought to kill him. We need to steel ourselves against that. We need to be on guard against that piteous begging of the old man. Christ is very clear. We must put to death the old man. We must put to death our sin. So we've talked much about the difficulties that lie in the narrow way. But there's also consolation in this way. We talked about the, the pruning shears and having things chopped off, right? Sounds bad. But who is the one that is doing the pruning? It's your loving Father who desires to see you produce fruit. That's the one that's pruning you. Who is the one who bears the rod of correction? It's the God of steadfast love who is producing righteousness in you. And who is the one who sets the temperature and the time needed in the refiner's fire? It is your loving Savior that does this, and as the hymn says, it is not intended to hurt you, but only to consume your dross. That is your impurities, your sin. So yes, it's a hard way, but the one putting us through that way is our loving Father. And He's doing it for our good. And there's joy in this. There's much joy in this. Although it's a hard way, it is truly a joyful, joyful way. So this is a hard way, but the reality is this is what repentance is all about, is it not? It's about coming before the Lord and saying, I'm wrong about everything. I surrender. My life is, your, my life is yours and I trust you to lead me. 
That's what repentance is. And here's the truth of the matter. You will not enter the narrow gate in the hard way unless you really believe that Jesus is worth it and that He will bring you through and receive you on the other side. The warnings of Jesus for us to count the cost is not intended to make us enter the Christian life with drudgery. That's important. We've talked about the cost, the hardships, the difficulty of this narrow way. But we're not to enter into this narrow way with drudgery. That's not the, that's not the right way to understand this. If that's, your, if that's your idea of the Christian life, you don't understand the Christian life yet. Remember this same Jesus that gives us Matthew 7.14 also gave us the parable of the hidden treasure in Matthew 13. And there he tells us that a Christian enters into the hard way. Why? Because of joy. Because of the joy of having Christ as our treasure. This is what motivates us and strengthens us to carry on in this pilgrimage. We walk by faith believing that the suffering of this world is not worthy to be compared to the glory that, we, that will be revealed in us. You remember the man that found the hidden treasure? He it was from joy he went and sold everything so they can have that treasure. That's the way that we are to live the Christian life. Yes, it's hard, but compared to Christ, it means nothing. You see that? Look at, look at the Apostle Paul. He counted all that he had as what? Trash, right? Rubbish. In order to gain Christ. And so yes, it's a hard way, but you don't really understand it's a hard way if you're a Christian. It's hard, but I, 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 I'm pretty sure I can say this with full confidence. If I ask any Christian here who's been a Christian for multiple decades, although their life has had hardships and struggles, they would not trade that for anything. They would not trade that for the easy way. They would not trade that for riches. They would not trade that for having a life where everything worked out just right. They would not trade it. In a million years, in a million lifetimes, they would never trade it. Because walking the hard way is a joy to the Christian. Remember what it says. Yes, it's a hard way, but it is a way and its destination is life. And what kind of life? Eternal and glorious life full of joy, unspeakable. And, and we've mentioned this before here. Eternal life is not something that we just that's waiting for us after we die. If you are a Christian, your eternal life has begun now. You are already in communion with God. You are already a friend of Christ. And you're already experiencing the joy of eternal life now. Well, let's make a couple of points of application. First, to anyone in here who may be walking on the easy way. Those of you who may be living indifferent to God. Those of you who only have Jesus as an add-on to your life. Those of you whose following of Jesus cost you nothing. Take heed to the words of Christ. And listen, the reality is you and I both know that making a profession of faith in the Bible Belt does not cost you anything. In fact, you actually stand to gain something if you make a profession of faith. In Southeast Georgia, if you make a profession of faith, people will congratulate you. They will say they're proud of you. They'll pat you on the back. It doesn't cost you anything to make a profession of faith. We have to understand that professing to believe in Jesus and following Jesus are not the same thing. If you're holding on to sin and are unwilling to part with it, 
if you are indifferent to the advance of the kingdom of God through missions and evangelism, if you are one who only every once in a while thinks about God, you are probably on the easy way. Remember that that way leads somewhere. And where it leads is destruction. But here's the good news. You do not have to remain there. In fact, Jesus invites and commands you to repent of your sins and place your faith in Him. That is to enter by the narrow gate and then to follow Him. And if you do so, the Word of God promises that the end for you will be life and life eternal. Now as we come to a close, I want to give a word of encouragement to those who have entered the narrow gate and are walking the hard way. Remember the promises of God. Live by faith, knowing that He is working all things together for your good. And that very soon, you will be with Him in glory. And that none of your suffering in this life for the glory of Christ will ever be wasted. But you will be received into glory with those amazing words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest prepared for you. Now, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Revelation. And I want you to listen to what will be the end result for those who conquer. And conquer here means those who have entered by the narrow gate, which is repentance and faith in Christ, and those who have walked the hard way faithfully to the end. Those who have run the race that Paul mentions. That's what's meant by those who have conquered. So turn with the Revelation. We'll begin in chapter 2 of Revelation. Notice verse number 7. To the one who conquers, that is, to the one who has walked the hard way, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2.11 The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 2.17 To the one who conquers, that is, who has walked the hard way and entered the narrow gate, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, so that, that no one knows except the one who receives it. Revelation 2, verses 26 through 28. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Revelation 3, notice verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, the one who has walked this hard way, following Christ, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. And then Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now we understand here that we conquer through Christ. The reason that we can conquer is because Christ has already conquered. And if we are united to Christ by faith and are disciples of him, we are walking the hard way after him, we too will conquer 
And all of these, these promises of revelation are ours if we're walking the hard way. So may, may each and every one of us enter by the narrow gate, which is none other than Jesus Christ, walk the hard way by faith, conquer and enter into glory, and all of this by the very grace of God. So brothers and sisters, we are walking a hard way, and this right here deserve, deserves a whole other sermon, but remember, we are walking this way together. We're not walking this way just by ourselves. Yes, I should as an individual strive to make it to the celestial city. But I am also required to help you on your way. And you are required to help me on my way. We have covenant obligations to help each other persevere to the end and enter into life. So let us walk together. And let us do so looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do bow before you now, thanking you for the reality that you have gone before us and you have conquered. You did not sin. You were tempted as we are yet without sin. You overcame the temptations of Satan. You succeeded where the first Adam failed. Lord Jesus, you are a mighty, conquering Savior. And Lord, you are the one who has called us out of darkness and into light. You are the one who has called us to walk this way. Lord Jesus, we have entered through you the narrow gate. And we pray that you would give us grace and help to walk the narrow way. To do so in a way that is a testament to the world of the value of knowing you. That we would realize that it is no sacrifice to give up the pleasures of this world for you. That you are far greater, far more desirable. Lord Jesus, we also realize that we are sinful and we still have remaining sin. We pray you give us great grace to put to death the deeds of the body. Help us, Lord. Help us to remember our weakness. Help us to Remember your promises and remember the very means of grace that you have given us. And Lord Jesus, help us to remember one another. Help us to pray for one another. Help us to hold each other accountable and encourage one another. Help us to stir one another up to walk this way with faithfulness. And we pray that in all this you would be glorified. Thank you, Jesus, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, at this time, if you would, please stand. We'll sing together hymn number 80, How Deep the Father's Love for Us.